This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody and welcome back to New Books and Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alexandra Otolia-Baird, host of the channel, and today I'm talking to Nicholas B. Miller about his new book, John Miller and the Scottish Enlightenment, Family Life and World History, published by Voltaire Foundation's Oxford University Studies in the Enlightenment in 2017. Nick, welcome to the show. Hey, hello. Nice to be here. So to begin, we always like to ask authors to tell um, us a little bit about themselves and how you came to the topic of your book. Right. So um, I guess I'd start by saying that I I come from a multicultural background. Uh, my mother was born in the Philippines and my father is from a uh, Mennonite community in Indiana. Uh, I grew up in quite eccentric parts of the United States, including southern Utah, where polygamy is still quite common, uh, southern Nevada. Um, as well as Hawaii. And so um, even as even while growing up, I think I um, saw that different ideas about family life were, you know, clashing, but also being negotiated on a daily basis. And um, as I, um, you know, grew to become an intellectual historian of um, Scotland uh, and of uh, the 18th century more broadly, um, I think um, I, th- I think it's that background that perhaps, um, well, informs my interest in aspects of gender in the family. That's that's a very kind of interesting link that um, I'm sure we can come back to. Um, so, so what were your um, motivations then specifically um, writing about John Miller and the Scottish Enlightenment um, on, on this topic? Right. So um, I wanted to tell a story about, um, about how cultural difference was negotiated uh, in the Enlightenment and namely that relating to the domestic sphere. So the questions of marriage, family life, child rearing, et cetera, et cetera and, and how these were intellectually appraised. And um, I think I wanted to do this in a way that uh, was somewhat different than um, older studies uh, on um, individual figures in the Scottish Enlightenment, um, which tended to be framed along how uh, these figures anticipated certain modern disciplines, um, so anthropology or sociology or, or even political science, for example. So. So my interest here um, wasn't so much to declare John Miller, who I ultimately decide upon as the most interesting Scottish Enlightenment thinker to um, think through these issues about the encounter with um, family, the you know, familial difference. Um, what I didn't want to do is declare him as the anticipator of anthropology or sociology. Uh, and indeed, that's um, perhaps the, 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 the previous monograph, the only other monograph that has been written about John Miller. Uh, in the past century, um, in fact, even included that in in the title um, that he was a forerunner of sociology. Um, so uh, 
I would admit that, you know, by clearly establishing a disciplinary legacy for individual Scottish Enlightenment thinkers like John Miller might help us, you know, put them on a map and, uh, you know, have a easy, uh, easy, you know, uh, buzzword for them. Um, but really my, my interest, um, really was not so much the Miller himself, but rather the, the intellectual context he operated within and, uh, what, let's say, his decisions and what his arguments reveal about that time period, about that moment in the uh, encounter between, uh, well, the encounter of European thinkers uh, with uh, global diversity. So in a nutshell, my, my motivation here in this book was, was really distinctly contextual um, to see how um, norms of gender, norms of family life, and ideas of civilization were being Discussed and, and configured um, at this at this time period, the this, this Scottish Enlightenment, which of course um, I think many of your listeners will know, is uh, often um, understood as an important intellectual um, turning point in you know history of progress, uh, narratives of development, uh, and uh, you know the ideological justifications uh, for uh, British and uh, Western, more broadly, colonialism. Uh, as it you know ramped up in the in the nineteenth century that that contextualization is is so um so rich in the book and it's something that's um that was really really enjoyable and and incredibly enlightening but um just before we move on, I think it might be helpful to perhaps give listeners um a brief overview of who John Miller was and perhaps um the contribution that he's traditionally or, or has been seen to have kind of had um for intellectual history right so um let's just start with maybe a biography of John Miller, you know, let's hit at the, hit, hit the basics. So um, he certainly was uh, an important, if not, if not the most important figure of the Scottish Enlightenment. And, and I'm not, uh, as much as I have grown to um, care for John Miller as part of, you know, researching for this book, uh, working on uh, him, you know, reading his, uh, his work quite closely for um, probably a five year period. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I, as much as I care for him, I'll admit that he's not the most important figure. Um, but what's really interesting uh, and what allows us to contextualize him within the Scottish Enlightenment is his connections, perhaps, with more uh, famous scholars, uh, above all, Adam Smith. So he was Adam Smith's star student. Uh, he studied closely uh, under him at the University of Glasgow. And then uh, after completing his studies, uh, you know, after, I think, just a couple years, uh, he uh, went on to be appointed as professor of civil law there, and he held that post for nearly 40 years, uh, from 1761 uh, until 1800. Um, really, John Miller's, uh, aside from his two main treatises, uh, which were the origin of the distinction of ranks, uh, and then his later historical view of the English government, uh, Miller really lived a, a faculty life, uh, was really closely engaged with the university. Uh, he's quite famous for having revived the study of law at the University of Glasgow, you know, like uh, student numbers shot up. Um, so, you know, star faculty member. Um, but he, um, but besides his activities at the university, um, he also networked very closely with other leading figures of the Scottish Enlightenment uh, in between his uh, appointment as professor of civil law and his time studying at the university. He actually served as a tutor for the children of Lord Keynes. Uh, he was a very important philosophical judge and very well, uh, very generous patron of Scottish Enlightenment thinkers. Um, he also, uh, you know, was in discussion, uh, you know, 
conducted correspondence with David Hume, other uh, figures. Unfortunately, a lot of the correspondence we don't have. Um, Miller really followed in the uh, the follow the tracks of his great mentor, Adam Smith, including in having uh, most of his correspondence and unpublished uh, material burnt, uh, you know, around the time of his death. So uh, while that may have preserved, let's say, the uh, average level quality of the, uh, you know, the of, of what remains, uh, it, of course, is no fun for an intellectual historian, which indeed did pose some challenges when uh, researching this book. Um, but um, let's say, let's see. Um, also with John Miller, I think uh, another aspect which is quite curious in terms of, let's say, setting him against his counterparts is that he never left Britain. Um, he only traveled outside Scotland for a couple of times uh, for a couple of journeys to England. And so in contrast, for example, to Adam Smith or, or David Hume, for example, um, you know, his, uh, his network in a way uh, that extended outside of Britain was, was uh, weaker and uh, was only based on correspondence. Um, right. Let's go on maybe to think about the legacy of perhaps his most important work, uh, which was the origin of the distinction of ranks. And that really constitutes the basis of my analysis in this text. Um, this is the work uh, in which Miller um, deploys a uh, really rigorous analysis of the links between economic relations and social relations. And, and the way that this came to um, satisfy, let's say, the, the basis of my curiosity, which was, you know, questions of gender, questions of family, and questions of global diversity, he did this by renovating the Aristotelian uh, paradigm of uh, the distinction of household authority relations. And I think we'll talk about that a bit later. But um, it's, that type of analysis, um, that use of the stadial paradigm that really um, served as the basis of interest in Miller um, in, uh, you know, as, as Miller's uh, works were rediscovered um, during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, Miller's uh, basically influence went, um, well, went pretty much forgotten during the 19th century. He became quite an obscure character. Um, but what happened was, uh, in the early 20th century, Marxist scholars identified in him a, a pioneering spirit of economic determinism and historical materialism. So uh, first, in the first instance, Vanna Sombart, but he was followed by uh, important um, scholars such as Ronald Meek and, and, and later Hans Medic. Um, and uh, we can also talk about this uh, later, but um, the connection between Marx and Miller is quite interesting. Um, the theory that Marxist historical materialism has its roots in Miller is actually based on the fact that uh, Marx uh, uh, kept extensive notes uh, of his reading of uh, Miller's Origin of Distinction of Ranks. Um, but in fact, when we go uh, into those notes, we'll see that what, what here is really interesting is um, it, it informed not so much Marxist historical materialism, but rather Marx's uh, history of the family and gender that, you know, was later, uh, which was later, uh, well, re-edited and published after his death by, by Engels. Um, but so a lot of attention to Miller was based on, yeah, this, this, this notion of him as anticipating historical materialism. And then later this shifted, as I already mentioned, to an idea that Miller's, uh, you know, his, his attachment to system, his interest in system, and his also, um, supposed use of empirical sources, uh, lay, uh, well, made him a disciplinary predecessor of sociology, and that was put, put forth by Lehman. Um, more recently, over the past uh, few decades, um, attention to Miller has really focused around the same 
um, set of questions that, you know, have driven me to him as well, which are questions of gender, questions of uh, history, questions of um, the encounter with um, global difference. And here I'm thinking of scholars such as Jane Rendell, Paul Bowles, and Sylvia Sebastiani. Uh, on a final note, there's been a, you know, interest here on um, Miller's politics. He frequently was considered the most radical member of the Scottish Enlightenment, uh, particularly, um, you know, given that he was a bit younger than, you know, the, the core scholars like Adam Smith, uh, William Robertson. He actually lived uh, into the period after the French, uh, you know, after the outbreak of the French Revolution, which Miller initially supported. Uh, and so, um, some scholars, such as Duncan Forbes, um, and particularly Michael Ignatieff, have um, discussed that aspect of Miller. Um, Forbes put forth the notion of Miller as a, a scientific Whig, uh, which I, uh, which uh, yeah, which is an interesting uh, approach for sure. Um, and just to say, um, maybe to combine all these things, going back, uh, going on just from you know why was Miller found to be interesting by scholars subsequently to what I praise as his signature contribution to intellectual history. Um, I think, um, you know, it, his contribution has to be placed in the context of the Age of Enlightenment, and indeed it is his, is his spirit of synthesis, and um, the way that this configured his, stadio, his attempt at stadial history. Um, and so I think that's very established. But on, a, on a, maybe a secondary note, um, I also think we find in Miller a really sensitive eye to history, uh, and especially a type of social history. And that's particularly developed in historical view of uh, English government. And um, just to I maybe just end, end this point right here, um, as I know many of the readers, uh, many readers of this book have uh, found, um, as much as I you know, appreciate his sensitive eye to history, I think we should also um, think about what, where that eye was directed uh, in terms of his interest in history, which was fundamentally local. And so this led um, both implicitly as well as explicitly to a historical gaze um, connected with the history of progress that was fundamentally based on Europe and even more narrowly on the on the history of Britain. Thanks, Nick. And I think that very complex character comes through so clearly um, in, in the book. And I think you present um, such a such a kind of fascinating tapestry um, of all these kind of elements of, of Miller's um, kind of thought and, and person. But just moving on, can we, could we get you to kind of outline the, the structure of the book and, and kind of how the argument progresses? Right. So what I've decided to do in this book is uh, focus on a number of case studies. And again, this is because the, you know, the question of this handling of um, evidence about, uh, you know, difference in, uh, well, gender difference, familial difference in different societies, um, how that was engaged constitutes, let's say, the starting point of the analysis. Um, although the book is, you know, has John Miller as the, uh, as the core of its title, um, really, uh, you know, my interest here is in using John Miller as a, as a form of guide um, to uh, the broader questions of um, the historical diversity of, and the global diversity of family practices and the alignment and the way in which that difference um, functions as a sort of intellectual challenge uh, during the during the Enlightenment. Um, so again, just to recap that, like the way I the way the book is structured is um, using um, what I call domestic differences or um, you know certain issues relating to uh, gendered and familial difference uh, as a as a, as the focal point rather than organizing the text. Um, 
just on the basis of, let's say, Miller's analysis itself. I'm trying to unpack the analysis here and 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 put a focus on how Miller, uh, in a way, dealt with uh, this uh, empirical side of his uh, of his uh, thoughts on uh, household authority uh, aspects. Um, so the um, each case study relates to um, yeah the analytical paradigms of this questions that were uh, that that were debated broadly in the 18th century uh, and indeed before then. These were sort of early modern um, concerns um, generally, uh, well, at least in the, well, in, the, in, in, in the three first chapters. So what are, so let me just go through the chapters right now. So the, the first is on polygamy. Um, the second is the question of uh, matriarchy or to use the um, term more common in the 18th century, gynecocracy. Uh, matriarchy didn't really become a popular um, concept until Bachholz's analysis of the, uh, of the of the 19th century, but uh, really uh, we see the we see the underpinnings of the notion of matriarchy as a sort of inversion of patriarchy already developed in the you know by the 18th century before Miller indeed. Uh, and then the third chapter um, focuses on a very specific uh, iteration of matriarchy, namely its, uh, its its possibility and its place within a sort of historical schema. Of, um, of you know social contract, which was the Amazon, uh, and um, this chapter is I think is especially interesting uh, in that um, the Amazon served as a sort of basis for um, thinkers in the Enlightenment to test both the, the to the interrelationship between a rereading of classical uh, testimony with a uh, with the uh, reading of a more recent uh, ethnographic material. Um, Collected, you know, on from the age of uh, explorations in the in the 16th century uh, onwards, um, and then moving on from the Amazons, I then uh, under the fourth chapter um, consider uh, race and the way that race uh, was configured or not in uh, Scottish Enlightenment discussions of national character. And here Miller receives a little bit to the back, um, you know, to the, to the sidelines. Uh, and then uh, in the fifth chapter, I um, take up what Miller thought of his contemporary society, namely uh, the gender and familial relations, uh, the, the, the practice of marriage, the relationship between uh, parents and children in his um, home, you know, in his uh, in his contemporary moment, and his ideas uh, and uh, you know fears, his anxieties about the future of family life. Um, so the argument of the book, just to, uh, you know, just to go back to the point, is again to focus on Miller's contributions within the intellectual landscape of his place, uh, of his time, uh, you know, to place Miller within that, but also to, uh, to delimit uh, Miller's contributions. And what I am trying to do here with this structure is a, is a type of intellectual biography that, you know, rigorously contextual, but also avoids a type of hagiography, uh, a type of intellectual hagiography. Um, and I think that is really the, the, the methodological contribution that I aimed in, in this text. And, you know, my point here is I don't want to make Miller out to be a greater work, a greater thinker than he necessarily was. Um, I think he was a solid thinker and a fascinating thinker. But I really think what is interesting with Miller is the different ways in which he um, cobbled a distinctive uh, argument um, in the intellectual debates and uh, particularly world of sources that existed. Uh, at his time. Um, and I think if there's one thing that an analysis of Miller's choices and um, analysis evidence, um, you know, that I, uh, that I basically, you know, keep coming back to as these chapters progress, it, it again is, um, 
it's how it's the place of sources and the extent to which we have inductive rather than uh, rather than deductive uh, log, uh, use of sources happening in the Scottish Enlightenment. I think there's frequently this argument that uh, certain un like unsavory conclusions uh, offered in the Scottish Enlightenment. We can bring up, for example, David Hume's infamous uh, you know writings on race. Um, frequently, there's a thought that this was due to limited uh, evidence available, or this was due to a sort of like circumscribed, um, you know, global perspective. And, and really, I think this, this rests on somewhat, uh, on quite patronizing, um, bases. Um, really, these type of, um, conclusions were not based on, uh, let's say the, the sources themselves. These were based on the, the sources were always used, uh, strategically as part of, uh, the, uh, a debate on Difference in society that existed in the in the Scottish Enlightenment and uh, you know ideas of the history of society. So so really here the, the 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 point of using the case study format is to make this argument again of the um, of really the deductive function of source use in the Scottish Enlightenment. And I think we'll, we'll definitely come back to this um, topic of sources and evidence because it's it's a really kind of driving force in the book. But um, I'm really struck by by how you talk about John Miller as a guide um, uh, and a kind of this methodological approach. I think that's a really um, a really nice way of kind of condensing what you've done in the book. Um, that using John Miller as a guide to explore this this much um, kind of wider and richer context. Um, but let's dive then um, straight into chapter one. Um, to, to kind of really get, get to the nitty gritty here. So here you explore um, enlightenment ideas regarding polygamy. So could you describe a little bit about how polygamy was variously viewed by some of the, the thinkers that you include in the book and, and maybe explain why it was such a very, very contentious topic at the time? Sure. So um, polygamy really was the, was the focal point of the 18th century discussions on, on, on let's say, different forms of marriage much for much more than actually um the right to divorce which i think is a well, that's a really interesting um aspect that we can uh unpack maybe later um but the, the reason why was uh often as we, let's say in terms of like enlightenment philosophers so if we think of like montesquieu uh, miller included if we think about what they found interesting about or let's say very different in other societies it was how marriage um could be, uh, you know, st structured differently, and there, in a way, there's no more basic structured structural difference than, you know, monogamy versus polygamy, uh, and um, so it functioned as uh, it functioned as a way of discussing marriage practices in almost every other society that Europe thought uh, or considered civilized during this time period. So, of course, like the Ottoman Empire uh, or you know Turkey, as it was more often referred to in the 18th century. Um, sources. Uh, also China, Japan, for example, the, the, essentially um, these, these scholars, these, these thinkers reflecting upon marriage practices in other societies came to this conclusion that polygamy essentially dominated or, or was permitted in every society in the world um, besides, um, besides Europe. And so when then thinking about how, um, you know, just in terms of sources, it was an inevitable thing that would come up with, again, with polygamy. And this presented an in interesting challenge for Miller and a lot of his arguments based around this, which is how could, um, why did Europe not have polygamy if this was generally a feature seen in most other wealthy, um, you know, rather, well, he wouldn't use the term 
as such, but you know, civilized or developed societies. Um, but of course, you know, as broad as that, as broad of a question as that ultimately became, more narrowly, it also had to do with Europe's specific history um, in relationship, especially to Ottoman expansion, uh, and you know, to go even farther back to uh, you know, the general aspect of the Crusades, of, you know, notions of Christendom, in which polygamy was tied very specifically um, to Islam. I mean, that gave a certain color um, to uh, the discussions of um, polygamy in, in the time period. But at the same time, um, the uncertain proscription of polygamy in the Christian tradition also uh, was uh, revived uh, in, uh, you know, not just conceptually, but also as a practice uh, during the Reformation. Uh, and uh, this actually uh, gave cause to a really interesting event in um, 1780, which and you know, that decade in the 1780s, uh, in which I, I discussed with some detail in the book. And this was the uh, Madame controversy. And so this was when uh, polygamy was put on the British public stage. A uh, Methodist, uh, rather eccentric Methodist, uh, decided to advocate uh, the legislation of polygamy. Uh, as a means of protecting women, uh, the byline of his uh, text, which is called Delathora, was a treatise on female ruin. Um, this occasioned a huge um, public, uh, you know, a huge outrage among the public uh, with, you know, all sorts of pamphlets, plays, texts written uh, about it, almost all, you know, against polygamy. Uh, and here we saw a couple, um, you know, we you, you see not only the use of uh, not only do you see in the in you know in this cultural production um, a uh, constantly rehearsed uh, connection between polygamy and Islam, so you know Madan was imagined as a covert Muslim, for example. Um, but you also saw in these debates, quite interestingly, the strategic deployment of Miller's ranks uh, and his discussion of polygamy uh, in them. Um, and so that that that's all, that's all shown in the in the um, that's all shown there in the in the text. Uh, at the same time, you know, um, a lot of the sources that Miller used on polygamy and other um, scholars at the time also used derived not from let's say China or from uh, from you know from Islamic countries, but they also came from the um, 16th century, where you have you know the famous case of Munster, the uh, attempt uh, you know the sort of like fleeting period there. We had a community of property. Uh, and you had, uh, you know, community of uh, women. Uh, and so this, uh, yeah, so, you know, here you see this, even though there's this conceptual connection with Islam, also with other societies more broadly, there also, it also functioned as a, as a debate, perhaps that uh, wasn't as uh, far-fetched as it might seem to us today, um, because of, you know, this period of, uh, of, of the Reformation. Um, and again, uh, one other reason why polygamy was so uh, featured so uh, prominently in debates of this time period was that it provided an alternative analytical paradigm to discussing differences in marriage structure. Um, basically, mon monogamy, polygamy, or um, and, and uh, the possibility of divorce. That's frequently what was used as trio. Um, and uh, Miller chose instead instead of that trio, which was used by a lot of other of his contemporaries, like David Hume, for example, chose to discuss, uh, you know, family difference just through that paradigm, through through marriage. Miller chose to focus on household authority relations more broadly. Um, both of these paradigms, the, you know, the trio of lifelong marriage, polygamy and divorce versus, uh, and, this, uh, and the authority, Aristotelian authority relations, 
of uh, the relationship between husband and wife, father and son, master and servant, and sovereign subject. Both of those, you know, had their roots in natural law, and they had been discussed um, by a number of thinkers. Um, but really, what was interesting about Miller was to subject um, this Aristotelian paradigm to uh, historical and, uh, you know, ethnographic analysis um, to answer, you know, the core question of how did your uh, contemporary family uh, relations come to the fore. Um, now here, what's interesting with polygamy is that, uh, you know, Miller, I think, went this route because he didn't just want to talk about marriage practices. He wanted to talk about, you know, different dimensions of the family uh, more broadly. And so what the Aristotelian paradigm offered him was a more encompassing uh, approach to um, to the history of the family, in part because, you know, his main interest was writing a history of authority uh, and the sort of a history of authority that uh, would go from, you know, the beginning of authority uh, or the beginning, I'm sorry, of civil society onward. And even though I start at polygamy, uh, which again is uh, sort of reflects the, the sort of the sort of alternate paradigm that Miller had at his time. Um, the reason why I'm doing this again is to uncouple the logic of his analysis, which again, you know, the, the first chapter begins of, um, there, there's four broad sections of the text, uh, which correlate to um, these uh, again, these four Aristotelian power relations, the, the husband and wife, father and son, master and servant, and, and sovereign subject. Uh, and what, I, and well, Miller kind of changes the place of those, and sovereign subject's not so much Aristotelian as sort of like 17th century natural legal. Um, but what I, but what I do is by putting polygamy as this, like, as this first chapter, it, again, is to uncouple the, uh, the, the sort of progressive analyst that Miller um, develops in his text and to, to hone in exactly on the context and what choices Miller and what alternatives Miller had uh, to structuring his analysis. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So in spite of this um, furore surrounding um, uh, polygamy, there are some some kind of more, I suppose we could call pragmatic um, kind of views on polygamy um, that you introduce, which are which are linked, um, especially to debates on population. Could you um, tell us a little bit about why population growth was such a pressing issue um, and how this was factored into shifting ideas of the family? Right. So I, th I think it can be often forgotten, um, especially for those of us who are less engaged with social history to remember just how slow population growth was generally before the industrial era, and uh, especially how devastating the wars of the of the early modern period, as well as pandemics. I, I think we're more aware of the, uh, the, you know, the damage of pandemics now than perhaps a year ago. Um, I think we're all a bit more alert about that, but, um, but how devastating, um, you know, pandemics and wars were demographically. So in Germany, for example, in the, during the 30 years war, you had areas of where the population declined by over 40%. Um, in Britain, um, you know, Britain generally saw, you know, healthier rates of population. So this was less acute, but in other European contexts, you know, population and, uh, how to essentially not even, you know, grow population rates beyond what they, uh, they, you know, not not to increase absolute population increase, but just to restore population was was really an obsession in, in Central European context. And 
Uh, just on a side note, you know, my interest here in the relationship between polygamy and enlightened Arab populationism um, is one of the aspects that uh, that I take up in a uh, in my chapter in a recent collected volume that I put together with Erinotola uh, on um, cameralism and the Enlightenment is the, is the title, and that's from Routledge. So you, uh, your listeners can um, check that out if you're if you're interested in those questions. But anyway, um, what I was interested here um, uh, in exploring these pragmatic interpretations of polygamy, which were not just let's say limited to Central Europe, but also include uh, but also um, featured to a certain extent in in um, Scotland uh, was again trying to um, contextualize Miller. Miller was not really interested in the populative possibilities of polygamy, but David Hume was, for example. Uh, and he David Hume was basically uh, well negated the idea that polygamy led to a possible population increase. But again, this is uh, exploring this allows us to contextualize Miller against this context. He's he's broadly not he's not interested in the question of population growth, which I think says something about where you know Miller what where Miller is going in his analysis. Um, and again, maybe just to return, um, I guess to this. This topic uh, again, you know, I think it's important to see, and this is how Miller does re uh, relate a bit to polygamy. This this experiment in Munster, the relationship of uh, between the Reformation and um, and and polygamy. There's this really interesting thing where, like, let's say in Central Europe, um, you have certain exponents like Eusti who uh, are promoting polygamy and then are vilified for it. Uh, and I think there's often this, uh, you know, need knee-jerk reaction that we have now to see, okay, well, polygamy was uh, detested in uh, 18th century Europe uh, or, you know, beyond the pale because of its associations with um, Islam. But at the same time, we should also think about it as a, uh, in it, its connections with a period of radical Protestantism, a period of, you know, radical reformation that um, by the 18th century was um, being seen as a rather dark period in Europe, Europe's history. I think that's a very good warning there for intellectual historians to pay more attention to to social history. Um, but so moving on to the, your second chapter, which is called "Before Patriarchy: Maternal Power in Primitive Societies." Now, here you explore Miller's discussion of an early society in which women prevailed over men, and it's absolutely fascinating. So, could you explain what led Miller to to make such a conclusion, and and perhaps give some of uh, describe some of the examples that he uses to support his argument? Right. So in a nutshell, I mean, to, to give a very intellectual historical answer to this, I guess, after the social historical of the last one, um, I think what Miller is doing here is um, he's really drawing on Hobbes. And uh, this is because Hobbes develops a really interesting argument, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, his, uh, his, uh, his development of a concept of social contract as a root of, uh, you know, the authority relationship or authority submission to uh, political authority. Um, Hobbes, um, really emphasizes that there is this transitional moment in uh, the early history of civil society from uh, essentially maternal dominance or maternal authority to uh, to male authority. He sees uh, Hobbes basically lays out this argument that uh, in a world, uh, you know, in this sort of you know this uh, period of uh, you know early society, the only society that exists is that between a mother and child. And because marriage doesn't exist yet, policies don't exist yet, one would assume that this alliance between or the, the affections and the respect held by uh, the child to the mother would um, persist. And this would give rise 
in uh, certain instances to societies where, uh, you know, very early societies where women actually held political authority. Uh, and so Miller basically reiterates this argument. And what he does beyond pause is to actually, you know, draw on uh, contemporary sources. Uh, and what I, and this is the second chapter of his, uh, you know, the first half of the book. And it's really the first half of the book, even though he talks about other authority relations, that that between uh, husband and wife is a, a, a serious focal point of his analysis. Um, and what he wanted, to, what he was using Hobbes here for, uh, and what he was still, what, uh, well, he was he was still taking Hobbes's answer um, quite seriously for uh, for addressing the question of this stage of the of this early history of civil society. Uh, and what this allowed him to do is actually engage testimony, which uh, many other thinkers just left out about. Um, various societies across the world in which um, sort of matriarchal, what we would now call matriarchal um, practices were evident. But, you know, in terms of Miller's historical time uh, and his history of progress, he really was adamant that, you know, this this was not so much, uh, let's say, gynecocracy, which is a term that we see in Diderot, for example, but this was rather the maintenance of eternal power in primitive societies. Uh, he really was keen to circumscribe this, uh, this, 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 this uh, exalted role of the the mother to uh, again to a very early stage in the history of uh, of, of politics, and so this had um, well, clear uh, ramifications to his idea of this as let's say um, its place in the in his contemporary world, right? This, this he backdated this in terms of historical time, in terms of the history of society. Um, this use of Hobbes, I think, is really interesting uh, in that. The, the connection between Miller and Hobbes has not really been problematized or investigated before. And so I think this, what I do in this chapter does, uh, you know, present maybe one way of thinking about Hobbes' continued legacy, because this is really, uh, um, this, this, art, this, this answer he comes up to with is not found in, uh, you know, is not found in Locke, it's not found in the other Scottish Enlightenment thinkers. So it, it's quite, uh, it's quite curious. Um, so I, what's important to underline here is that this had much less to do with a proto-feminist inclination. It had, but again, it had to do with history, this history of authority. Um, let's just talk about maybe some of the um, sources that he used. Um, so a lot of these had been previously mentioned by Montesquieu, and, and this was sort of common in you know, this period of Enlightenment social reflection uh, of you know, the history of society. A lot of the testimony, well, Montesquieu just you know, came up with all the sources, and then uh, you know, other scholars then reread them. Uh, you know, in, in his history of the law. And uh, what we see is that in a couple of the main examples that were provided were the, the people of the Malabar Coast in India, for example, who were reputed to practice a form of polyandry. Um, there was also the political practices of Native Americans in North America, such as the Iroquois. This, is, uh, this has been rather well discussed. Uh, also, the people of the Mariana Islands. This is, uh, these are, you know, this is now the, the biggest island in this chain is Guam. This is a Spanish colony from the age of explorations. It was a stopping uh, stopping station between Manila and Acapulco in the you know the, in the galleon trade. And um, there you had uh, reports of a maternally focused property and household regime uh, through that was provided through a, um, a, a through a through a let's say late seventeenth century. Uh, writer named Charles Le Gobian, and then I go into depth about the, you know, where Le Gobian's testimony came from, how Miller read Le Gobian, uh, and how other scholars at the time also read uh, Le Gobian. Um, 
finally, and this led, uh, this leads us to the next section, uh, one of the sources that Miller used uh, was the Amazon. Then let's let's pick up on those Amazons because I think that's um, that's one of the most striking. Well, all the chapters are striking, but this is a particularly interesting one. So here's where you're uncovering Miller's um, views on what is a very very uh, popular theme in Enlightenment thought. So this is the social and gender dynamics of the Amazons. Could you just give listeners a very broad overview of the kinds of tropes um, that existed in European discourse regarding um, Amazons and how and and why they were being used um, so frequently um, by Enlightenment thinkers? Right. So um, with the Amazons, yeah, it's, it, it's quite interesting. Really, they featured frequently in, in, in especially in the Scottish Enlightenment, but in other contexts as a um, a sort of like a negative uh, negative role, negative character, right? It was just like, okay, well, how are they impossible? That became frequently like a, a thing that you see rehearsed time and time again. Um, it would be like, oh, you know, this is these uh, fantasies from the Renaissance uh, or, you know, classical antiquity. Um, this was source failure on the uh, part of, you know, these travelers that had gone to the Amazon River Basin, for example. I mean, the, the, the river basin's named after the fact that the, you know, the first um, European explorers there thought that they had seen Amazons. Um, you know, it, again, it kept on coming up and again, again and again, it's like, how could people have been so mistaken? Uh, you see the sort of like, you know, enlightened versions of arguments of, you know, marvelous possession, uh, for example. Uh, Miller didn't want to do that. Uh, Miller, uh, in fact, uh, would try to use this renovation of Hobbes's uh, discussion of, uh, you know, maternal authority uh, and, uh, you know, heightened place of maternal power as a way to um, have to say that, well, maybe what is what these, uh, you know, 16th century explorers saw in the Amazon River Basin and elsewhere. And this was not, let's say, uh, this wasn't an observer error, but this perhaps was uh, more of an analytical um, issue. What what Miller wanted to do was he didn't wasn't defending that the Amazons actually existed as you know in the conventional um, you know in the in the formulation of the conventional trope right which was you know single breasted women uh, you know militant there's a gender revolution uh, they lived apart from men they raided um, you know integrated societies frequently for their uh, you know for, for provisions um, they would do this uh, very strange practice. Uh, where, you know, once annually or once every few years, they would commune with some men to get pregnant. Um, you know, that, that, that all featured quite commonly, especially late 17th century, but also 18th century discussion of the Amazon. What Miller wanted to, um, yeah, Miller was essentially trying not to just, and this actually reflects a lot about how Miller uses his sources. He wasn't just content to say, okay, well, th these are marvelous. They don't, they're impossible. They don't exist. Um, this is ridiculous. This, this belongs in the realm of fantasy. What he actually tried to do was, um, describe how um, a society that had a uh, where, where where women had a let's say a more active role in politics and uh, and in property relation and power how that um, could have existed in a different time period. Um, let me draw attention to I think one of the most interesting discussions of the Amazons, and this is who Miller footnotes uh, on the topic, and this is Pierre Petit. So he's a really fascinating character. Uh, I think that there hasn't been a, a study done on him. I think that somebody who's really interested in, you know, uh, you know, very uh, interested in working on, um, you know, maybe the, the late legacies of humanism should should take him up. But so Petit was a late 17th century French lawyer he had, who applied Cartesian dualism to, um, well, not just the Amazons, but another marvelous report from classical antiquity to the cannibals. And 
Uh, what you see in him is a really interesting application of both humanist reading practices and the sort of Cartesian duality uh, between, uh, well, mind-body, but, uh, well, he, he called it body-soul. This was more conventionally Catholic. Um, but really what I think you see here is an interesting counterpart to people like Poulain de la Barre, who Steve Sturman, for example, has, uh, you know, brought our attention to as a, as a really uh, early uh, feminist thinker. Um, but yeah, so Millard drew upon um, Petit to um, source his brief discussion on the Amazons. And uh, by forging this connection between Petit and Miller, um, my uh, goal here again is to you know, draw attention to the sort of wealth of sources, this wealth of possible paradigms that Miller had at his disposal to, you know, to write his progressive history. I just want to yeah, pick up on that point of sources and evidence. Could you um, tell listeners a little bit about the ways in which Miller's use of these um, kind of evidentiary sources w- was somewhat different to contemporaries, also kind of thinking about um, Amazons and, and kind of matriarchal societies? Right. So um, one reason why, you know, frequently the word scientific uh, is used to describe Miller. So if you think of Duck and Form Scientific Wick, for example, or, you know, this idea of him as an early sociologist, uh, is his use of the footnote. And he, um, you know, given, you know, compared to contemporary, uh, well, 18th century standards, he certainly was a more enthusiastic user of the footnote than, than other scholars, uh, you know, let's say compared to Montesquieu, for example. And his, his practice of the footnote um, is it, quite, you know, this actually was one thing I found very interesting when I first, you know, started encountering Miller's work. And, it, you know, he offers page numbers, he offers the book titles, he offers the author um, sometimes. So this actually makes it quite easy to uh, replicate his citation practices or his reading practices through his citation practices. And so these drew me in. And in a way, that's really how I got to uh, Miller's, uh, you know, to writing this book is I was following the footnotes. Uh, he drew on a rather wide range of sources, um, some of which were from classical antiquity, most of which were travelogues, uh, you know, compiled since the age of exploration. And uh, what we also see in the footnotes and types of works he was using is uh, what languages he could speak so, or, or read, rather. So in addition to English, he, he read Latin and French. Um, he did use sources collected in other languages, but these were mainly through translation. And one of the themes I also focus in on these, in, in, on these uh, first three chapters is, again, this aspect of, um, you know, what happens to the testimony as it transitions between languages. You know, some of the sources he used were like fifth-hand sources. Um, and again, I, I do this and I make this point about the sources, again, um, to sort of focus, to, to, to evidence how Miller read his sources strategically. Um, sometimes, you know, you would, there would be a piece of information like two paragraphs later in the, in his, the source that he had quoted that sort of disproved how he had just used it. And to me, it's unlikely that he, um, it, it, it's unlikely that, you know, he didn't read that. Um, I actually think that he read things quite closely, um, but rather he cited sources very strategically um, to emphasize, um, you know, certain uh, points that he wanted um, to make. And I think, uh, well, what I, one thing I really want to do in the book is like, I, I really want to argue that we should take the source use more seriously um, than, than um, is often done. We should view source use as a, as a practice, you know, not just the practice of footnoting, but also this, this reading practice. Um, we should focus on this, uh, you know, closely uh, rather than just accepting uh, in you know, quite a vague way that Miller is engaging in a type of empirical analysis. Thank you. What a testament to the history of the footnote and its importance. Um, 
So you turn then in chapter four to um, enlightenment assessments of the domestic order of colonial Spanish America and above all in relation to race and how knowledge of the diverse familial world of Spanish America came to the attention um, of figures of the Scottish Enlightenment. So could you explain the forms, um, in, so coming back to that point that you've just made, so that the forms in which this information was reaching individuals um, like Miller and why the racial hierarchies of the Spanish, Spanish colonies were of particular interest um, to those who were engaged in studying the science of man? Right. So um, I think that some uh, readers find this chapter a bit puzzling and why I included it. Um, uh, partly, I think it's important to think of, like, I think it really behooves Late 18, the scholars of the late 18th century to um, explain uh, what the thinkers they're now analyzing, what relationship they had to um, either sources about race or um, particularly analytical paradigms of race. Um, I think this is a, a blind spot that can't be left. Um, at the same time, Miller's uh, Miller really did not use race as much as a central paradigm. And to me, um, that became something to explain. I, I appreciate that some intellectual historians think that there's no need to problematize what is in fact an absence, but I, 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 I disagree with that. Um, really, what you and what what's interesting here, I, you know, Miller receives to the backdrop, except for a footnote. I mean, to bring that back up, and and why I decided to write this chapter was Miller quoted quite extensively uh, from sources that were sourced from Spanish America, and he even mentioned. Uh, for example, that one of the figures uh, that he analyzed to represent uh, uh, cultural practices in uh, you know more primitive society was a mestizo, and there it's I, I think it's, it's it's quite curious. Again, I think it would be uh, I think it would be very ungenerous to the thinkers of the time to um, just say okay Miller maybe knew nothing about Spanish America. I think that's very unlikely, um, in particular because there was a waging debate um, between. Um, well, not only was William Robertson de- developing his history of America, for example, that focused mainly on Spanish America uh, and you know the conquest of the Americas, Americas, the Christianization of the Americas, um, but also a debate that was happening between Lord Keynes and Lord Bobodo on aspects of race. And uh, you know, Sylvia Sebastiani and her work has done uh, done great stuff to um, recover that. Um, but um, but you know, one thing I really wanted to understand was how we can um, situate Miller's work, uh, which again made so much use of a discussion of differences between societies, um, how we can contextualize that upon contem- in, in eight, late 18th century discussions on, uh, on, on race and how uh, race uh, featured as a, um, dis- excuse me, a distinguisher between um, different peoples and uh, also their family practices or the gender practices. Um, in part, uh, one reason why Miller did not uh, draw upon, you know, the paradigm of racial difference was uh, also, his skepticism uh, broadly to climatic uh, explanations for um, for differences in, for example, birth um, in, in you know in birth ratios between boys and girls. Uh, this was um, something that Montesquieu quite used quite enthusiastically. And what Miller does in the introduction to his ranks, for example, is to dispute that and say that um, you know generally uh, the you know the, he stakes the quite universalist claim about uh, how the human body operates regardless of climate. Um, so, uh, again, like I, th- this chapter is really about, let's say, putting, uh, is, is about focusing on the alternatives um, to Miller's type of analysis in its, uh, in its contemporary period. And I think you make a really important contribution there to, to what is still a growing field, right? This, the study of race um, and kind of ideas of race within the Enlightenment. And I think you, 
you you make a very important kind of argument for it there. But I, I want to just focus um, on something that you bring up in this chapter, which is that this key contradiction between the global scope of Miller's account and his views on the universal human capacity for improvement. So could you unpick this tension a little bit, um, especially with reference to the Spanish-American case? Right. So my, my interest in his strange use of Spanish America is, you know, doubly as an intellectual historian, but also a global historian. And and I was really fascinated by how he, like other Enlightenment thinkers, struggled to situate testimony from Spanish America in, in, in terms of historical time. In a nutshell, um, almost all of these thinkers knew that Spanish America had been radically transformed after the age of Iberian explorations. You know, that the conquests of Cortez and Pizarro were, were common knowledge. Uh, you know, th- there's no way they didn't know about but, but they continued to think about that evidence about pre-contact social life could still be extracted from Spanish-American locations, even when collected by Spanish priests discussing mixed-race individuals and Catholic converts. So to me, what I found really interesting here is how even despite that knowledge and such evidence of drastic cultural change affected by conquest, um, it, this, there was no impact upon the conventional understanding of historical character for Enlightenment thinkers. And I think what this reveals is the very limited degree to which these thinkers, and Miller included, um, really cared about the uh, question of historical character beyond the application uh, or the you know ramifications of it for the formation of their own um, you know their own specific historical character, what we would now call you know identity uh, you know national identity. And so this, this this blinder that exists kind of there is not something that I think uh, you know it has received enough attention uh, and. I think it, uh, however, reveals a lot. It reveals the, especially in terms of how it related to um, historical time and notions of progress. It revealed the contradictory thinking that was endemic uh, in the civilizing mission, not only as it was uh, practiced in the 19th century, but also as how it was configured in uh, missionary societies and Scottish missionary societies in the 18th century. And this was that Europe was normatively, uh, you know, the best. Christianity had an important part of the story. Uh, Europe's social institutions um, were ahead of social time. Uh, you know, they were ahead in the story of historical time. And really what I was trying to do in this chapter is to outline the, these themes, um, you know, to outline, well, in, to really probe a theme that, um, again, constituted a sort of absence in his analysis and doing that, again, synchronously, not anachronistically. In your final chapter, you then um, move on to talk about Miller's reforms for commercial society and how these link to his views on the family and also the individual, which I think is something um, really to kind of point out as this individual. Um, Could you just give us a a general overview of what Miller's vision of this society was and how it related to the wider intellectual and political climate um, of the Scottish Enlightenment? Okay, so... Basically, one one thing, one of the more interesting things that's happening in the you know as Miller's analysis develops and something that he subscribes to, like other social management thinkers, is is commercial society and the place of the family in commercial society. Uh, and so, what's interesting about commercial society for Miller is that it represents a sort of distinctive um, pattern from that in other world societies, societies who had become quite wealthy and had also exhibited uh, you know complex hierarchies. Uh, you know, stratified societies, uh, you know, uh, sustenance mainly, um, you know, sustained through agriculture, some forced labor, uh, you know, uh, great amounts of wealth that could sustain a sort of court society. Um, what distinguished Europe uh, from those societies was um, commercial society. Um, 
In commercial society, what's really interesting how it functions for Miller is that this is a, basically his way of dealing with European particularity. So he has a history of monogamy that basically is, well, that's essentially based on the very uh, specific uh, history of Europe, um, which, it, which allows Europe essentially to um, break beyond the general rules that he outlines elsewhere in his, uh, in his, in, in his work. So um, the general pattern of history is that actually society becomes more unequal and more, and the, the relations between genders actually become uh, less and less equal, and in fact more antagonistic, more uh, more based on the sort of master versus servant distinction. But but what Europe had because of the this coincidence of uh, the fall of the Roman Empire uh, and the arrival of Christian uh, moral standards and the disaggregation of property collections and the rise of feudalism. Uh, again, this is, this is a very historical argument that's not universalist, but particularistic. Um, that enabled Europe to arrive to a period of luxury um, where um, power was divided um, quite even. Well, you know, power, there's a lot of division of power and that even affected the uh, household. Um, so uh, for Miller, commercial society is ultimately based on, uh, you know, it's, it's commercial society specific to Europe and it's based on gender relations, but also broader authority relations that are more individualistic and more in a way egalitarian than those found in other uh, world contexts. Um, so Miller, so that's sort of like, again, Miller's history, Miller's analysis in the ranks is to sort of understand this uh, in theory from a universal history of progress, um, but also because of, you know, again, his fidelity to sources, his fidelity to local context, his historical eye, also to explain this in a distinctive history of Europe. Um, so how did, what did Miller think then of what this, um, like what, what the implications of this sort of individualism, this commercial society, what, what did it mean for the future of family life? Well, he was really anxious. Um, I mean, like other Scottish Enlightenment thinkers like, like, you know, Adam Ferguson, he really feared unintended consequences. And one fear he had was even though he was, you know, it's a bit ethnocentric celebration going on here, but while he's very, um, you know, Happy, he thinks that you know relations between uh, you know fathers and children or uh, husbands and wives is in a way gentler or more uh, you know more uh, you know e e uh, level eyed than in other um, societies, historical or contemporary. Um, what he feared was that the spirit of individualism might actually have uh, un unintended consequences, uh, and uh, you know might actually such a family authorities to the point where poverty, uh, for example, could increasingly become a, an issue for uh, society. And, and that is, and th this is, his anxieties to commercial society aren't just specific to the family, but more broadly to this, this aspect of, of um, the, the relationship between the individual and, and uh, other uh, bonds of, uh, well, with other people that conventionally would have been provided through, uh, you know, the family life or through the community. Um, but again, this, this idea of the sort of like, you know, a uh, isolated individual fighting for themselves in the world. So, so really what Miller is doing here in an interesting way, he's coming upon a, a, a concept, even though he doesn't quote it, of, of the modern family and the, the specificity of, uh, and the, the issues relating to their, you know, individualism, the spirit and the contradictions and the tensions between sort of individualist spirit and, uh, you know, a type of uh, domestic society based on reciprocal obligations. So before we finish, Nick, I think we've we've gone quite thoroughly through the book at this point. But um, I, I just want to come back to this this uh, this concept of history, and and because really central to to your book is this exploration of how figures like Miller are interpreting history and progress and historical time. So 
Could you explain to listeners um, who are perhaps not as familiar with um, kind of the stadial histories of the Scottish Enlightenment, why this is really such an important juncture in the history of European thought? Right. Stadial histories are, are, are crucial in that what we find in them is a kernel of a sort of a of, of, um, of the distinctions that undergirded 19th century disciplinization, uh, and namely between, let's say, anthropology and history, okay? So um, what these stadial histories um, do in that, you know, they progress essentially that usually there are four stages, sometimes three, but in Miller's case and other Scott's case, there were four. It's this transition from the stage of savagery uh, to a state of barbarism or uh, hunter-gathering. Um, then you have the stage of agriculture. And then finally have a sort of civilized stage or commercial society. Okay. And, and really like the exact taxonomies differ, but what's important here is that there's this um, articulation of a, uh, of different periods of historical time, which different societies in the, in the world can occupy at different periods. Um, I think perhaps the most important implication of this, besides, you know, its obvious effects on justifying, you know, colonial power or the civilizing mission was again in terms of disciplinization. Because it uh, foregrounded this distinction between history, which was specific to civilized uh, uh, societies, particularly those with writing, and uh, uncivilized societies uh, who uh, were viewed as, uh, you know, uh, well, they lacked written testimony and thus falling into the remnants of what becomes anthropology. Thanks, Nick. I, I might just quickly sneak another question in, which is, um, your book, you know, is assessing and, and reassessing um, Miller's significance in the Enlightenment and, and the legacy of, of, you know, you've talked about legacy of Hobbes and, and stuff feeding into that thought. But um, what do you think that we should, uh, as readers, um, perhaps take away or, or perhaps not take away um, from, from Miller's thought in 2020? Right. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think that stadial history is, uh, I mean, even if you haven't thought about it before, sorry, it, it's, it's probably self-evidently complicated and connects with the, the issues if it connects to a lot of debates that's been happening, you know, in the academy for decades now. Um, but what I think what Miller offers us, um, in, you know, on a, on a positive light and perhaps more than perhaps any other Scottish Enlightenment thinker is um, the longevity of questions of change and diversity in family practice. Uh, and What's interesting that in even in context often thought as as, as pious as early modern Scotland, um, we see how gender and family were not merely tack on issues, but actually focused in uh, uh, actually existed as the heart of how contemporaries thought about society and thought about other societies. We have a great deal to learn from that still. Um, before we let you go, Nick, can we get a brief idea as to what you're currently working on? Okay, well, I'm currently uh, working on, I've taken a bit of a global history turn, uh, and uh, I've become really interested in uh, immigration, so this sort of continues the sort of population concerns. Um, one thing that will be coming up soon is a trio of works that I've been working on uh, about two indigenous monarchs in the Pacific, so uh, in, the, in the 19th century. This is Abu Bakar Johor and King Kalakaua of Hawaii, and the relationship between immigrant newcomers, budding plantation complexes, uh, and et cetera, and of course with um, colonial uh, mission schools, and this is the sort of connection there. Um, both were educated at Protestant missionary schools, and both uh, bought into locally specific notions of enlightenment. So this this sort of was uh, this is partly born from a general interest I have in the global uh, working out of the enlightenment, which I know is a very contentious topic, um, but something I wanted to um, dig into. Uh, and then 
Finally, another, let's say, longer-term project I'm working on actually has to do with the global history of indigo. And uh, I think this will interest um, listeners uh, who are, you know, especially concerned with uh, 18th century Scotland. Uh, one of the focal points here is Andrew Turnbull, uh, who was a Scottish medic turned Mediterranean council in the Ottoman Empire turned attempted indigo planter in colonial Florida. Uh, and so I'll be working on that in the next, uh, over the next few years. So stay tuned. Well, they sound absolutely fascinating, and I, I, I'm sure we will have you back on the show to talk about them. Nick, thank you so very much for being here again. And um, to listeners, just to repeat, the book is John Miller and the Scottish Enlightenment Family Life and World History. Thank you so much, Nick. Okay, thanks so much, Alessandra. Bye-bye.